Thanks for reading that, Madison. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll put that back up on this. Uh, wherever you want. Um, as I said earlier, uh, good evening and welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Nick Brancher. I am the campus minister here for RUF, and I'm glad you joined <laughs> us this evening. Tonight we're continuing on in our series uh, that we've entitled Songs That Shape Us in Psalm 59. Uh, that should be pulled up, that is pulled up behind me, slash my numbers on the screen if you want to ever text me a question about anything that I'm teaching on. Uh, it's also on the back of your handout if you've got one of those. Uh, but I'll remind you that we've called this series Songs That Shape Us because that is what the Psalms are. They are songs that are meant to be sung by God's people, and as they sing them, God would effectively be giving his people words to describe him, to describe themselves, and to describe the world around them. But one of the most remarkable parts of the Psalms is how they reach even deeper than just concepts, right? They actually shape our very emotions. Uh, They give voice to how we feel in our everyday lives uh, when we experience heartbreaks and successes and failures, uh, desires that we have. In other words, the Psalms are really songs for specific occasions. They're words that God gives us to sing uh, when we are feeling certain ways, designed to help us feel those emotions and experience those occasions in a way that honors and glorifies our Creator. Last week, we looked at Psalm 51, right? And we answered the question, how are we to repent? We saw that we repent by first apprehending God's mercy, uh, then in freedom, in the freedom of knowing that God is merciful, we confess our sins to him, and finally, we turn from those sins to God, experiencing his grace anew and endeavoring after new obedience. Tonight's psalm, Psalm 59, is a song for justice. Justice and anger are not... Uh, particularly popular aspects of God's uh, character in our culture these days, the fact that he is a judge. Uh, On the whole, if God even exists, uh, usually people like to think of him particularly as loving uh, or forgiving. Uh, No one will usually fight you over the idea of Jesus dying on a cross because he loves us. Uh, But because we desire personal freedom and bodily autonomy, Uh, Above all else, people will fight you over that same God, defining what is right and what's wrong. Uh, Because our highest value in society is affirming our self-made identity, we believe if God is loving, if he's loving at all, uh, he would never, he would never deny us something that we desire. Uh, And with no eternal standard by which uh, God can judge anything, God becomes, at least in our minds, kind of like a an old grandfather figure who simply says, you know, pats us on the head and says, well done, I'm proud of you, of everyone and everything, anybody, you know, anything anyone does. Um, He's resorted to this kind of benevolent old man. But here's the deal. Uh, This rejection of the God of the Bible, who actually has a standard for us to live by, it has left us with an ache and it has no cure. Uh, By stripping God of his ability to require what is right, we rob him of his capacity of of judging what is wrong. Let me say that again. When you strip God of his ability to 
dictate what is right, to require what is right, we rob him of his capacity to judge what is wrong. And this means we dismiss the possibility of an angry, judgmental God and his rigid moral standards only to look out into the world that we've now created in hunger for the very justice we just uh, eschewed, right? As uh, we just tossed aside. And this hunger for a righteous judge, we can't get away from it. And it actually evidences itself in like hunger pains in our culture. Um, that's what I call them, hunger pains. They're moments where we cry out over injustice, over being wronged. Only we don't really know who to cry to, especially when authorities and powers of this world fail us. Uh, usually these hunger pains uh, are moments of collective outrage. Uh, they surface when Michael Brown, an unarmed black man in Ferguson, Missouri, was shot by police. Uh, they surface when, uh, when the Me Too movement arose, uh, this crying out against sexual harassment and uh, abuse and assault. Um, the reality is, in rejecting morality, um, nobody warned us that we would lose our standard bearer. Uh, in rejecting God as king, no one told us that we would lose the protection from our enemies that we enjoy with him. But this psalm invites us back to this God, back to a God who seeks protection for his people and, uh, and actually invites us to solicit his judgment and wrath against those who hurt us. In tonight's psalm, God's actually going to invite us to, to know this kind of God, to see him as this kind of God, a God who will not tolerate evil. If we will accept him and his kingship, we inherit him as protector and judge. And so he gives us these words to cry out to him when we've been wronged. Uh, some of you have been wronged in some pretty tragic ways. Um, for some of your stories, not everyone's, but uh, I know that in this room, uh, just numbers being what they are, people have had parents that have withheld love or said hurtful things, um, caregivers that have abandoned you, uh, boyfriends or girlfriends that have left uh, their scars from cheating or disrespect, um, friends have stabbed you in the back or made you to feel less than, um, or maybe it hasn't even been as bad as any of that, right? Our psalmist tonight, though he is afraid of bloodthirsty men who are his enemies, we find out that the real threat is actually just their words. I say just, but words can really hurt, right? Uh, they are stirring up strife in verse 3 and possessing a sword in their lips in verse 7. That's a uh, that's purposeful, right? He's not, they don't just possess uh, you know, a tongue that kind of hurts. They possess a sword in their tongue. Have you ever been hurt by someone who has said something untrue about you um, or uh, about you that was undeserved? Uh, or maybe it was something that was unsaid, something that should have been said that wasn't. Maybe uh, you were intentionally excluded from plans that friends made uh, and they did not invite you to a party or to hang out. Uh, in all these little ways, the reality is that we have all entered this room having been sinned against, right? We, none of us have been free from the effects of other people hurting us. And these wrongs, they leave us in the same place as the psalmist, crying out for deliverance and protection. In these moments, according to this psalm, God actually invites us to pray. Pray that he would make our enemies totter until at last he brings them down to destruction 
consuming them in his wrath until they are no more. Uh, These are direct direct quotes from verses 11 and 13. Um, That might seem a little much to you, but if any of the things have happened to you that I've talked about, right, maybe it might seem a little bit much for a friend who, like, fibbed a little on, you know, when he would show up for lunch or something, right? But, like, for the things that I'm talking about, for real, true injustice, right, we long for a God who will, who will uh, consume people who are evil in wrath until they are no more. God wants us to ask for that judgment when we recognize sin in this world that is running rampant, um, especially when it's committed against ourselves. Um, but the question becomes, if this climax of the psalm is to be prayed, that God would burn someone up in judgment, how are we to pray it? Right? What should be our heart's posture as we cry out to God for judgment against sins committed against us? That's our, our big question for the evening. If you're playing along at home, you're making a little outline. Uh, our big question for the evening is this. How are we to seek this justice when we have been wronged or hurt? Or just put simply, how are we to seek justice? How are we to seek justice from God? Um, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll jump into our passage. Uh, dear God, As your psalmist has taught us to pray, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So let's dive into our passage as we attempt to answer the question, how are we to seek justice? Let's start by looking at verses 3 through 4. After a brief prayer to God, the psalmist begins to describe the situation that has birthed this psalm. His enemies, the people seeking to wrong him, are doing so for no transgression or sin on his part. Uh, Through no fault of the psalmist, these men are out to hurt him. Now, when the psalmist says that this sin is being committed against him without any sin on his part, uh, this does not mean that the psalmist has, like, never committed a sin, right? We shouldn't absolutize this statement in a way that makes it, like, impossible for us to pray because... We've never committed any sins, right? It's not that God, uh, it's not that um, the psalmist is saying that he has never sinned. It's that in this particular situation, right, uh, he is um, he is clean or he is innocent of the of the wrongdoing. Um, We know this because uh, the author of this psalm, David, will make uh, that assumption explicit in other psalms, like Psalm one forty two, where he writes. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Right? So he acknowledges, I'm not always guiltless, but uh, it's not so much that he's better than those that he is accusing of sin. Right? He's not guiltless. It's instead that uh, it's it's limited to this case. Right? And it's in an essence, he is uh, bringing his case before a civil magistrate or, or like a civil judge. Right? Uh, and he is claiming not to be the bad actor. He is right to play the plaintiff, and he should win the case, right? And the fact that uh, it's in our Bible means that God affirms the same thing, right? That there is a possibility that uh, you can be hurt by someone and not have uh, done anything wrong to them to solicit it. Um, We can say a couple things about this, about this idea that he says he's done nothing wrong. First, and I've said this before in our sermon uh, sermon on Psalm 13, so I'll try to make it brief here. 
it is possible for people to treat you poorly or wrong you and it not to be your fault, right? We at least know that much from this psalm. Uh, there is a type of like hyper-spiritual Christianity uh, that says that because like we're all guilty of sin, that we deserve every bad thing that comes our way. And this psalm is basically standing in direct opposition to that. Um, when, we, when we adopt this idea that uh, all bad things are things that we deserve, uh, this leads to something I, I have uh, titled uh, spiritual Eeyoreism. Uh, you guys know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? It's spiritual Eeyoreism. Everything's terrible, you know, and it's to be expected. It's God's judgment on my sin. I deserve for people to treat me like this, you know? This is not, this is not the cry of the psalmist here, right? Hard situations in life may be, may be God trying to sanctify you, right? It may be that when you go through something difficult, God is actually giving you something to wake you up to the reality uh, that you are in sin or you're doing something wrong or that you deserve some sort of chastising, um, his, his fatherly discipline, right? But other people sinning against you is definitely not from God. Uh, James 1.13 says this, that God never tempts anyone to sin. Uh, so um, we want to avoid spiritual eerism, but in avoiding that kind of uh, hyper-spirituality, we should also not fall into the opposite ditch, uh, which is spiritual pride or Phariseeism, right? Assuming that we have played no part in the fact that sin would ever be coming against us, right? And someone sinning against us. Sometimes people may hurt us out of us hurting them, right? This happens when you neglect to invite someone to a group hangout and out of the pain of being left out, that friend tells other people that you're a jerk, right? Now, should that friend have told other people that you're a jerk? No, they should have come to you and told you that you hurt their feelings. They didn't. But you're also not clean in this situation, right? Uh, this The reality that the psalmist here can say that he has not invited this sin against himself means that there is an opportunity for people to do that. That uh, sometimes uh, people will sin against us because we first sinned against them. Um, And this doesn't excuse anyone's sin, uh, but what it does is it lets us know the correct course of action. It's not this psalm, right? This psalm is not about this kind of thing. The correct uh, course of action here is not to pray this psalm, but instead... Uh, to humbly ask for forgiveness to your friend, right? Um, This is why Jesus gives the advice in Matthew 7 that before we confront a brother or sister about their sin, we ought to examine our own, right? Before uh, you try to remove the speck in your brother's eye, you should actually take the plank or the log out of your own. Um, The reality is the psalmist, though, has not fallen into either of these ditches, uh, he has examined his situation rightly and knows that he, is, he does not warrant this attack, uh, right? He's, he's not in either of these ditches. He doesn't think he deserves it, and he also doesn't think uh, that he um, has done anything to solicit it. And so this actually gives our, our first answer to the question, how are we to seek justice? Uh, we're to seek it after examining our part of the situation, Right? At least we can say this about the psalm, that uh, seeking justice means we first start with examining our own part in the situation. Uh, The fact that the psalmist can declare himself innocent of the wrong means that he's done the hard work ahead of time, right? That he's done the hard work of examining himself 
and knowing whether or not he has some sort of part uh, in his in the situation. Uh, before we pray to God for judgment, uh, no matter how we may immediately feel when someone wrongs us, um, this psalm would actually invite us to take an inventory of ourselves, right? When we uh, have hard things happen to us, we don't want to immediately move into spiritual heroism or Phariseeism, but instead to look at ourselves and ask ourselves the question, what is my part in this, right? What is my part in this? This helps us uh, to escape those two pitfalls and it assumes uh, that we may be the cause of our enemy's actions, or we may not be. But uh, what if we, like the psalmist, have experienced so- someone wronging us, uh, and we survey our part in it, right? And we come to the conclusion that we're innocent, right? That, that this does, in fact, happen sometimes, like this psalmist. A true injustice is being committed. Maybe uh, your friend um, has just gotten jealous of you. And so now they have taken your name through a smear campaign, right? Uh, maybe your parents commented on how much you weigh, that you're either too thin or uh, too big. Um, and that comes out of their own insecurity, not based on anything that you've done. Um, and you uh, really feel the sting of these vibes. Parents are not supposed to talk to their kids like this. Um, maybe you've experienced some sort of abuse or assault, uh, how are we to seek God's justice in these situations where we did not invite the wrong done to us? Well, look at me at verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. Here the psalmist uh, turns his focus away from his situation to the strength and protection of God. Right? God, rather than the enemy, uh, fills the foreground of the psalmist's eyes. This is because the psalmist rightly recognizes God's role in the situation as well as his own. Right? What is God's role? Well, uh, while the psalmist's enemies howl and bellow in their slander of him, God is depicted as the true laugher. Right? While they hold uh, the psalmist in derision, right? God holds them in derision in verse 8. God, in verse 9, is depicted as a fortress behind which the psalmist knows safety. Of course, this is not literal safety or else he wouldn't have written the psalm in the first place. Right? What does he mean here? He means that God will protect him in the end. Uh, to borrow language from verse 10, he will meet him in his strife. Uh, that phrase meet is actually the same phrase used to describe a coronation uh, that would often happen. Uh, the people would go out and meet a king uh, if he conquered a people in war. And uh, in Psalm 21.3, uh, it describes this, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. That same word meet. In the midst of pain, God is coming to him face to face, going out to meet him, right? He's not far off. He is not distant. Um, uh, this we know is true uh, of God. Uh, in the past, God has gone out to meet his people Israel. Uh, he has brought them out of Egypt. He has been their God. He's given them food to eat, um, brought water from a rock. He's, he is constantly seeking after his people, but... Um, we have even more reason to believe this now, uh, post-Jesus. Hebrews uh, 2, 17 through 18 says, uh, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The, the reality is that like God has come face to face with us, not just 
spiritually, but physically. That God has become man. Um, that uh, when the psalmist here says that God will meet him in his strife, um, he doesn't know the half of what he's saying. Uh, that uh, Jesus knows what it's like to be left in a situation uh, and have to leave it up to God the Father. He knows what it's like to experience other people wronging him and have to give it over to God um, to trust that he um, is present in the situation and will make things right. Um, and this means that the psalmist simply looks, looks in triumph, right? It's not that he fights the batter, battle and that he will win. It's that he looks in triumph as God brings the victory. So this brings us to our second answer tonight. Uh, how are we to seek justice uh, with an understanding that God is the true judge, right? Uh, with an understanding that God is the true judge. How are we to seek justice? Um, so our first answer was after examining our own part in the situation, and then secondly, with an understanding that God is the true judge. And here's the thing. If God is the true judge, it means that you are not, right? Even as God gives voice to the anger and hate you feel when someone has really wronged you, in the words of this psalm, you also can let it go, right? Even as God gives you these words to pray and to cry out to him for how wrong someone has treated you, uh, you also, in the same breath, as you do this, can let it go because you can entrust yourself to him as the true judge. And this means that instead of dwelling on this hurt, right, uh, what do a lot of us like to do when uh, someone hurts us? right? Um, man, I do this all the time. Uh, I'll be like showering or something and I'll just replay the situation over and over and over in my head. And I'm like, you know what I should have said to that guy? I should have, you know, I should have done this. And like, oh man, when I was in traffic, I should have let, I should have laid on my horn. And we, we think about it all the time, like what we would have done, what we should have done. And we like punish this person in our minds. Um, this is, is actually offering a different way that God can be the judge, not you, that he can win the victory, that you leave it up to his ability to discern what is right and wrong. Um, that we, uh, honestly, at the end of all things, that we let God be God and let ourselves uh, not be, that he is the true authority and that we are not. Of course, I know as I say that, there's a, a way to hear that truth as some sort of let down or cop out, right? Um, especially when authorities are the very ones who've proved themselves untr untrustworthy of administering justice, true, proper justice. Uh, it might feel like you are, again, as you pray this prayer and as you are invited to pass the, uh, the burden of judgment onto God, instead of holding it yourself, you actually might want to grip it tightly because you don't know if you can trust God's authority. Right? Other authorities have let you down. Um, uh, and, and so you feel like maybe uh, since God is not going to do anything right now, it feels like you're just kind of like hoping for something, wishing for something. Um, he's, God ends up being just another letdown in a series of letdowns of authorities who should have stepped in to stop a pattern of abuse or neglect or shame. And instead... Uh, what's he done for me lately? 
it feels like God's not active or doing anything. But here's the reality. Um, passing the judgment off to God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, this is very bad news for people who brazenly sin against others and think they can get away with it, right? That the promise hidden in this psalm is that he really will. We are supposed to pray, and God will answer our prayers, that he will burn them up in his wrath, that he does not let sin uh, go unpunished. Uh, And this really should be the freeing news of the gospel, right? That this is included in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God the Father takes sin so seriously, in fact, and our sin so seriously, in fact, that only the blood of Jesus Christ, his only son, has the power to wash us clean and earn his forgiveness. That's the only thing that could cover such awful, heinous transgressions, right? If you think that God is just kind of like, eh, sin, it can go one way or the other. I, you know, I don't care that much about it. Take a look at Jesus. That is what it costs to cover sin. That is, that is how awful it is in God's sight, is that it would cost that much to cover it over. Um, if this is true, then uh, you don't have to hold on to that hurt, right? You don't have to hold on to that hurt. The guilt, the shame you feel, the fear of being sinned against, uh, those friends that said those hateful things, they are not the ones who get the final word. God does. And you can let go of the rehearsal in your head of what you should have done or shouldn't have done, and you can say, God will make it right. God is a good judge. So after we've assessed our own culpability, right, and we leave the ultimate judgment to God, is there anything else, right, we should do? Caught it. Is there anything else that we should do to seek justice? Um, well, let's look at verse 13. I've already mentioned the beginning part of this verse, uh, that God will consume them in wrath, uh, consume them until they are no more. But it's important to stop and consider the point raised by the psalmist as to why. God is the judge that he is, right? Why does God consume people? Why, why does God care so much about sin? Um, why will he answer this prayer? The whole point, right, the whole point of this prayer, the whole point that we are supposed to pray it is actually not even rooted in like our vengeance, our desire for, our desire for justice, right? It's not rooted in our own comfort, that we would feel better. It is instead that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Ultimately, it is God's glory that is at stake in whether or not he punishes sin, right? And that may sound like, wait, so God doesn't love me enough to punish sin? You want God to, be, uh, to have his glory at stake, right? That this is actually the, be- the best news we could hear is that God feels like sin, and it is, it is true that God experiences sin as a direct affront to him. We saw that last week in our psalm, right? That against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And Psalm 51, uh, that all sin properly is actually committed against God. And that means that um, God is invested in his own name in making things right. Um, Uh, This is actually the third answer to our question, how are we to seek justice? Uh, We are to seek it with God's glory at the center, right? God's glory at the center. Um, This kind of works. The reason that this is such good news, that God's glory is at the center of his judgment, at the center, center of 
his wrath is that um, there's a the, there's a principle at work here, kind of like a, have you have you guys ever seen there uh, there are a number of advertisements like this, but the one that came to my mind was uh, like Smucker's commercials, right? They have a little like tagline that says uh, with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good, right? Uh, that may sound like foofy, and it is because it's like a like a jelly brand, right? But uh, but the reality is what they're saying is. Um, our jelly is so good that, like, we'll put our name on it. Um, that you can judge us by what's inside the contents, by uh, how well we deliver on uh, what you want and what your needs are. Um, their name is at stake, right? Every bottle that you open, they're saying every bottle you open is a direct reflection on who we are, right? Uh, God's own name is a... He, is at stake in your sin and in, in, in how you've been sinned against in the fact that he will make it right. Uh, that um, just like uh, Smuckers has invested in their jelly, God has invested uh, literally in your, uh, your experience of wrongdoing, right? Of, of people hurting you. Uh, the earth uh, needs to know who is its right ruler. Um, that is at stake uh, and this means that uh, not only is it good for you to give God uh, his place as judge, but also that um, with his glory at the center, uh, retaliation and revenge are not the way forward, right? That when someone hurts us and uh, belittles us or sins against us, um, it's actually not our prerogative. It is God's prerogative to see that made right. Um, you may tell your friend, this is not inviting people to be horrible to you, right? But uh, you can tell somebody that they've hurt you or wronged you, but at the end of the day, it's not your job to make it right. Um, God will see to it. His glory is at stake. Um, This is also why finger pointing is also uh, not really part of what it means uh, to know who God is. Um, That's why it's not possible with God's glory uh, as the end of this prayer, right? As it's, as it's chief end, uh, we can be humble and hope for repentance, right? That, that um, because your satisfaction is actually not the center of this thing, uh, part of what it means for God's wrath to burn hot might be for it to burn hot against Jesus. That we can hope that God's name can be made great and, and that uh, people can know that he rules over Jacob to the ends of, er- of the earth, that he rules over Israel and his people to the ends of the earth, is that we can hope that they will also be part of his people, right? That instead of hoping that we get ours, that that person has to pay for what they did, we can actually hope that God's glory would be even greater manifested instead of just uh, disciplining them and punishing them, but instead that they come to faith in Jesus and that he can cover over even their sin. That the end goal is not your satisfaction, but his own, um, and that he can find that in Christ. So how do we know that God will be this good judge, right? I just said that uh, we're to seek justice uh, after examining our own part in the situation with an understanding that God is the true judge and with God's glory at the center. But how do we know that God will be a good judge and answer our prayer? Um, In the fall of 2012, a college freshman named Emma uh, was assaulted, uh, allegedly, at uh, Columbia University. And the guy who assaulted her was actually not 
uh, expelled. He faced actually no uh, punishment at all. Two years later, after uh, going to Title IX and attempting to get him removed for years, he was completely and totally acquitted. And so she made she did this. Uh, three years later, as part of her senior thesis, uh, she actually began carrying her mattress around campus. She would take it with her to every class that she went to. Anytime she left her dorm, she would actually hold the mattress up over her head and walk around uh, Columbia University's uh, campus. And what really struck me as I read this news article from 2012 about this uh, is as part of the project, um, this girl is not allowed to ask for help, right? Um, but she can accept it if it's offered. Uh, and she does this as a further analogy to the burden that assault survivors can carry with them. Uh, that uh, they want someone to help. They want someone to reach out uh, and they feel incapable without, with a system as it's in place. Um, here's the reality that like God wants to take your mattress. Whatever it is for you, whatever that place is in your life that you think um, I have been wronged, that God doesn't care, that he wasn't there, that he doesn't, he doesn't know the pain that I've been through and, and is far off from it. Um, the reality is that Jesus Christ uh, coming down, experiencing God's wrath, right? Um, I said this earlier, but Hebrews 2, uh, that he experiences uh, trials and temptations and is like us in every way, right? That whatever you think that God, God doesn't understand what I've gone through, he can't possibly be a good judge. Uh, we know that, that um, we can have full confidence knowing that Jesus has walked the same road that we have, that he wants to take that mattress, that he wants to be a voice for you, that he will one day come back and judge the living and the dead. And we have that confidence because he himself has secured it in his life, death, and resurrection, uh, that he is more invested in restoring the earth and making all things new and right than any of us are. He literally has skin in the game. His blood is at stake. And uh, because we can experience life and resurrection in him, we know that he is coming soon, uh, coming soon to judge for his name's sake. Uh, let's pray. Lord, 